You are listening to Think Theory Radio. 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 Hello and welcome to Think Theory Radio, the show that brings you topics outside the mainstream realm of thought and ideas to make you think. And I'm your host, Damien Perdue, your spectral guide on this distorted ride of audio delights. And of course, I'm joined by Polly C. Yo, yo, yo. Today, the C stands for cosmology. I want to ask you a question, Paul. What do physics and punk rock have in common? Oh, I know the answer to this one, but I'm not <laughs> going to spoil it. It is our next guest. Theoretical astrophysicist, cosmologist, particle physicist, author, podcast host, works out of the University of Chicago and Fermilab, and, and, and musician, and he is Dan Hooper. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me back. This is uh, one of my favorite things to do. This is great. All right. like to hear it. I know it's been a while. It's been too long. Like a year? Yeah. Like a year? Like yeah, a little yeah, yeah. over a year. Yeah, we, we shouldn't let that much time pass. No. Again. That was a mistake. That was an error on my part. <laughs> and also mine. Also mine. But, you know, <laughs> time gets away from us. Right? That's kind of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was giving you enough time to, you know, work on your music and, you know, figure out what dark energy is and, <laughs> and do all these things. So when you came back to the show, you have, you're have you jam-packed with information to talk about. That's right. I should have answers to all those questions I didn't know about right. last year. Come on, right? you didn't yeah, figure yeah. out dark matter in like a year and a half? Come on. Uh, not, you know, incremental progress. Okay. In okay. Incremental progress. That's good. <laughs> and yeah, so you've been up to a lot of things. I... Recently was checking out, uh, catching up on some episodes of the podcast. and Cool. You've had some great guests on there. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. And you've been, you know, when I hit you up recently to come back on the show, you're like, yeah, well, I actually have this new band that I like to promote called The Spectral mm -hmm. Distortions. Yeah. And it's a physics punk band. Right? You got it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've been playing guitar my whole adult life. You know, I s mm -hmm. started doing my first like bar gigs when I was like 16 back in small town, Minnesota. Um, but I've kind of played in every kind of band you can think of over the years. You know, everything from like metal and blues to like indie post-punk sort of weird stuff. Mm -hmm. And I even played in some alt-country stuff. And then for years, I played in the Chicago soul band, The Congregation. Mm -hmm. That was great. Um, we're still a thing, but we don't play that much anymore. And then I was kind of, you know, I'm not doing a lot of music. And what I really wanted to do is just take like my longtime love for old school punk rock and play it with friends. And who are my friends? Well, a lot of my friends are, you know, people I work with, physicists. And I thought, you know, it would be really cool to have a punk rock band of physicists who, like, have punk rock or physics-themed punk rock songs. Yeah. So I, I approached my, my, my friend. Uh, we, we're calling him Johnny Distortion. Okay. And uh, he's a physicist I work with. He's great uh, as a physicist and as a drummer. And got him on board. And then we recruited uh, another physicist to play bass. And uh, he, he got too busy, so we, we don't have him in the group anymore. Um, but we recruited uh, uh, Pedro the Distorted 
um, another physicist to, uh, to the front, the band, um, you know, he's just awesome. He just brings this huge energy and presence. It's really, really fun, fun to hear him sing. And then I reached out to a friend of mine, a non-physicist. Uh, we, we call him Basil, the okay. distorted and, uh, or distort distortion. And, uh, he's a, he's our ringer of the band. Like he's, he's like used to be a professional bass player and stuff. Yeah. So he brings a lot to the table, but he has this love like I do for like, old school like hardcore punk he's a big Minutemen fan if if yeah. you're a fault you know so um so the, it all works out really well and we, we have all these great songs either about physics or physics culture or kind of like philosophy of science um it's just it's just been a, a fun pleasure to be in this band um and yeah people should come check us out yeah and you speaking of that you're doing a show uh february 3rd at the burlington right yeah yeah right in logan square there on fullerton uh, we've got a great lineup. Um, we're going to have my my good friend Stick Horse open up, and then we're going to have Thirteen Monsters play James the Boneless, and then we're going to close out the night. Um, it's going to be a great night of of punk rock, physics, and otherwise themed. And um, yeah, come uh, you know anyone that comes up and say they heard this on the heard about the show on on, on uh, WCPT, I'd be happy to uh, you know buy them a beer and otherwise uh, nice. you know wish them well and all that. <laughs> well, I might show up because I actually live not that not that far from there, so you should definitely come. You and I would see be me thrilled in. to buy you at least a beer. Yes, that sounds good. Um, so, oh, I wanted to ask you though, for those that people don't know, including myself, what is a spectral distortion? Oh yeah, yeah. So it's a physics thing. So it's obviously a, a plan words, uh, you know, distortion and you know, distorted yeah, guitar so. and all that. But a uh, spectral distortion. So there's this light we see from the Big Bang. We call it the cosmic microwave background. This stuff, this light was released everywhere into the universe at the same time, about three hundred and eighty thousand years after the Big Bang. And distortions to the spectrum of that cosmic microwave background, which we've never observed but we look for, um, are called spectral distortions to cosmologists. Mm. So um, now I'm in a state where I like, I, you know, I'm sitting there in some some seminar or, or other physics, you know, environment, and somebody says spectral distortions in the physics context, and I just find myself kind of giggling like a <laughs> teenager, you know. You've heard my band? No. <laughs> <laughs> So and I I was listening to the album a couple times and oh, nice. yeah it's good I like it you know and it's always one of those things when when somebody you know tells you you know hey I got a band and you know you I know I know yeah, you know what it's I mean. always it's, awkward you get, yeah. you get that little skepticism in you and you're like uh, but now I know you're a qualified musician and I've heard the but most most bands aren't good right you no know, that's the problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's always hard when it's someone you know because you listen and you're yeah. like, oh yeah, man, it's great. But I really no, I was digging it, man. Uh, um, not just the the sound. I think it sounds really good. You guys sound polished, and but also the the concepts and the titles yeah. <laughs> are pretty good. Obviously, uh, we're going to play some of these songs coming up in the show. But there was one one of the songs which we're not going to play, but I have to ask you about. Okay, is stop emailing Dan. <laughs> about mond yeah yeah okay so um mond is this idea in physics that stands for modified newtonian dynamics and it's basically uh if you don't think dark matter exists but instead we just don't understand gravity or or, or how you know, how stars and galaxies and things like this should move mm -hmm. um you, you you're you're advocating for this position called mond and like 
this is a perfectly legitimate scientific thing to explore. It was a popular idea among physicists for a long time. Um, it goes back to the early 80s, right? So there's nothing wrong with thinking about Mond or something. But I get – these days, basically, Mond has been abandoned as an idea. It just doesn't work. Um, no version of Mond that's ever been written down like holds together with all the data. So physicists know this, or at least almost all of us do. But whenever I do any kind of like a podcast episode on dark matter or if I, you know, give some public lecture about dark matter or do like talk about dark matter, you know, in kind of a public sphere, the next day my inbox is – my email inbox is full of people telling me stuff about Mond. And a lot, <laughs> a lot of it – it's not just like – you know, not just curiosity either. Not mm-hmm. like just tell me about Mond but like people really forcefully like trying to cram Mond down my intellectual throat. <laughs> So in a kind of a lighthearted, uh, you know, uh, way we wrote this song, uh, please stop emailing Dan about Mond, um, which, yeah, it's, it's, it's the sort of thing we like to do. Okay, nice. Um, and what, since we're on the topic somewhat of, of dark matter is what, I guess, what's any kind of current, um, you know, projects or, New insight have you gleaned at all mm-hmm. in your studies of uh, dark matter and dark energy? Yeah, so the thing I'm most excited about, and this is like going to be kind of focused in, in dark matter, but like there's a signal that we, we've been looking at um, in, in, in uh, data from a gamma ray telescope, the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope. And we've been seeing this signal from the center of our Milky Way for, I guess, I don't know, 15 years now. I think this is the 15th anniversary of, of when we discovered that signal back in 2009. And, and that signal looks like the sort of signal that dark matter should make mm. if the dark matter is made up of a certain kind of particle. And, uh, you know, it's one of it, – it, it's kind of like if you asked me in 2008 what it would look like if dark matter – was in the galactic center and, and doing these certain things, I would have described something that's a lot like what that telescope ended up seeing. Hmm. So people like me are really excited about this. We're not sure it's dark matter, but yeah, I would, I, I'm, I'm an enthusiast that it, it very well could be dark matter. And uh, my good friend and colleague, Ilias Cholis, um, who's, who's up in Michigan, just put out a great paper um, giving us some more insight into the details of that signal. It's uh, really helping um, us to understand the, the d- details of the signal, like test different hypotheses of what might make it. So we're making really exciting progress there. Um, I, I'm optimistic that we're going to, you know, solve this, you know, resolve this question, figure out if dark matter is really making these gamma rays. If there, if it's not, well, I'll, I'll accept that and like, you know, we'll, we'll figure out what kind of other stuff is making the gamma rays. Mm-hmm. But it's possible this is really dark matter. And if it is, this is going to tell us a lot about what the dark matter particles themselves are. So like the comparison I like to give is like people knew that there was something called air like long before we knew what kinds of like molecules made up air, mm-hmm. right? So we know it. We know dark matter is there. We can tell it's there, but we don't know what kind of stuff makes up the dark matter. And people like me want to figure that out. So I want to figure out what the like individual particles of dark matter are like, what their characteristics are, how heavy those particles are, how they interact, what they do, all those things. And this might be like the first important step towards being able to do that. Oh, that must be insanely exciting just to even have, you know, close to a perception of, you know, what you're trying to get to 
Yeah, if it's if it's real, if it's real, it's it's going to be the biggest thing, you know. But you know, we we just have we have to know more before we can make that sort of bold and uh, you know historic claim. Now, is there any like really extraordinary theories on dark matter that? You might not believe, but you're you're interested in that seem. Oh you know, yeah, long list. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, um, give us what, one crazy example, like something that's just super crazy, but you're like, hmm, this could be it. Yeah, yeah. So, like, one thing that has actually become pretty popular um, among my my colleagues lately, and I've written quite a few papers on it myself, is that it's possible that the dark matter is made up of really tiny black holes that were formed in the first fraction of a second after the Big Bang. Mm. So um, the black holes um, would have to be in a kind of a kind of a special mass range, like roughly in a, in a, like they'd have a mass comparable to an asteroid. Okay. Okay. But black holes are so dense that that asteroid worth of mass would squeeze into something like absolutely minuscule. Like it'd be essentially a point in space. And these black holes could pass right through the Earth and never know it's there. It would essentially fit between all the atoms, you know, as it goes through the Earth, you know. But, like, there could be a whole, like, sea of these things. Like, just, just, uh, uh, like, we could just be, like, in a giant soup of, or, or, you know, fluid of these little tiny black holes everywhere. That's a perfectly viable, you know, scientific hypothesis at this point. Again, I, like, like you said, I'm not necessarily going to say I believe this is likely yeah. or something. But it all holds together, and it, it could be true. That's wild. Like a bunch of black holes, kind of like I know, like neutrinos, they flow through us, and we don't, you know, obviously mm-hmm. don't see them, we don't feel them. But something like that, essentially, but like tiny black holes just flying yeah. through us. That <laughs> sounds crazy. But but at least we can build detectors that can see those neutrinos. They interact mm. enough to do that. Right. These guys would interact so little that like we just wouldn't have any you know, way to, way to look for them yet. Yeah. I was reading about how the, they're detecting those neutrinos down in, um, Antarctica. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you're talking about the ice cube experiment. Yeah. Oh, I love that experiment. I'm a, I'm a, I did some of my very first work in graduate school on that, on that sort of stuff. Um, back then it was the predecessor to ice cube an experiment we called Amanda, but ice cube is the big one. It's a whole kilometer, a cubic kilometer of instrumented Antarctic ice that, um, you know, they, 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 bury these uh, photomultiplier tubes, these, these light detectors in the ice and wait for these really energetic neutrinos to come through. And they just light up that detector like a Christmas tree and you can kind of figure out where the neutrino came from and measure its energy. It's a uh, really exciting science. They're seeing these neutrinos. We still don't know where most of them are coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's one, uh, uh, so, like one source that we're pretty sure uh, we've detected in it. It's a big black hole, uh, you know, an enormous black hole in the heart of a nearby galaxy. And uh, the, it's an, what we call an active galaxy. So it's like taking matter and, and swallowing it up into that black hole. And that thing is making neutrinos. We're pretty sure. Um, but they see neutrinos from all over the sky too. And, and we don't really know where they're coming from yet for the most part. We have a bunch of ideas. We've ruled out a bunch of things, but, um, still a lot of open questions there. So that's another area I'm, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat for. Now talking about black holes, uh, it's always something that kind of fascinates me. I'm sure a lot of people because they're so mysterious. 
Yeah, if you don't find scary. black holes fascinating, I don't. <laughs> yeah, there's something wrong with you. Plus, I just remember that old. Remember the the, the I think it was 70s or 80s movie, The Black Hole. Do you remember that? Yeah, I've, I've never seen the whole thing. Okay, I've seen yeah. clips of it. Um, the clips look like pretty pretty astonishing. Yeah. Like like like. <laughs> Almost like over the top, mm-hmm. almost camp. I don't think it, they intended it for it to be camp, but it definitely looks like camp. Now. Yeah. So it, I saw it when I was a little kid, so it always just kind of stuck in my brain. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I always love the concept that a black hole is the kind of the uh, the other side of a singularity or something, or mm-hmm. like the other side of a, the birth of a universe is kind of one of my favorite uh, concepts. Yeah, like the idea that might connect to a white hole on the other side yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like sucking all the matter and everything in and then just spewing out a, a whole new universe on the other side. Right, right. Um, and in the movie, I think they try to travel through it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, um, that is that is highly unrecommended. That yeah. You should should not do that. Um, that will not end well for you. Uh, you, you have my, my physicist uh, credentials assuring you that that would be a bad life choice. Yeah, I don't think that. Yeah, not a good idea. Luckily, not we're, not, we're not there yet, so we're good. 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 <laughs> All right, I think we got to take a quick break, and as we go out to break, we'll play one of these uh, spectral distortion tracks. Awesome. Let's do uh, since it's it's a cold night in Chicago. Let's play a lonely night. Wonderful. Here on Think Theory Radio, we'll be back right after this.
Welcome back to Think Theory Radio. This is Damien, and today we're joined by the punk rock astrophysicist Dan Hooper. <laughs> That's your new title now. I love it. I love it. I embrace that 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 uh, title uh, ag- aggressively. Yes, you should. I mean, there's not. I, I don't think there's too many of you. I wouldn't. Th- <laughs> we were talking um, about the spectral distortions are fond of calling ourselves our universe's premier physics punk band. Yeah, we I think that. we're the only one. So <laughs> it's pretty pretty easy. Not a lot of competition. <laughs> Very niche. You have a <laughs> yeah, niche. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I was thinking, I have like tons of questions that we probably can't even get to because I was listening to uh, different episodes of your podcast. Originally, I had questions I wanted to ask. And then I listened to some some of the podcasts you have with different guests, uh, which I should mention. It's uh, the podcast called Why This Universe. Um, you and your co-host, um, Shalma Shalma Wegsman. Wegsman. There you go. And it's great. I, I love how many varying guests you've had on recently. Uh, it was like I listened to the one with Alan Lightman, mm-hmm. uh, the one with David Chalmers. And I really liked the, although it wasn't uh, technically a uh, one of your episodes, but you um, had the recording of you moderating the panel discussion with Avi Loeb and uh, – right. Was it uh, Jeffrey Graf? Uh, no, Garrett Graf. Graf. Garrett Graf. Garrett Graf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Which I, I thought was really great because I, I love all things extraterrestrial or aliens. So. Yeah, that was part of the Chicago Humanities Festival, and they were, uh, you know, very cooperative. They recorded it in a high fidelity way and, and just turned over to me to include on the podcast feed. So that worked out really well. Yeah, that was good. That was a good one. So I, I drummed up so many different questions. Uh, and I'm a big fan of David Chalmers, too, as well. And, uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I was like all these so all these different questions. I don't know which ones to get to, but I was thinking. So originally, before I get to questions based on the podcast, okay, I was thinking I wanted to ask you about time. Okay, okay? and considering you did write a book, The Edge of Time, right? And, I did. <laughs> and one time is I've done several shows on time. I've done a time travel show. I've done just a kind of a time and reality show. So I'm always kind of fascinated on time, how we perceive time, how our brain works with time, how we exist in different time frames. And then you have this kind of different perception of time here on earth compared to like, I don't know if you want to call it solar time or galactic time. And how time, you know, begins with a big bang. But I have one question and maybe it might seem kind of dumb. I don't know, but I was thinking about, okay, so we consider the universe to be about 14 billion years old, right? Or a little older. That's right. Yeah. And, but that time, 14 billion years is based on how we perceive time here on earth. Right. So like a solar year, 14 billion years would be earth years. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, but we could have set that to any kind of standard we wanted. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, we can take like naturally occurring clocks, like maybe like an atomic clock or something. Mm -hmm. And we can like figure out, okay, well, you know, this kind of 
thing we can set up in the lab. It does something on a very regular basis every so often. And then, now that's our new unit of time. We can tell you how many of those are in a solar year or something. So, like, I don't think it, it like you could have this whole conversation without ever mentioning the Earth or Sun or something. Okay. Um, it, but we, you know, it's convenient for us as human beings to think in terms of seconds, minutes, hours, days, and years. But like, uh, you know, it would be very easy. Well, that it would it, be inconvenient, but it would be totally possible to talk about cosmology without any reference to any of those units we could use other kinds of units of time right so it's just based it, it doesn't matter exactly uh how we measure it because i was just thinking about it as if there were you know let's say there were different civilizations peppered throughout the universe and they obviously have a different perception of time based upon how they rotate around their star right so their perception of how old the universe compared to ours might be different but i guess it would be the same is that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, like, perception's one thing. Like, you know, um, like, I, I'm, I'm very confident that, you know, over the last 13.8 billion years, our universe evolved from a hot, dense state, the thing we call the Big Bang, to the thing we have now. But you're right. If there's some other civilization that, you know, has decided to make their time, you know, relative to some other standard, you know, maybe it's how long it takes their planet to go around their sun, mm-hmm. or maybe it's how long it takes something else to happen. Who knows? You know, it could be any number of things. Maybe it's how long it takes their star to orbit their galaxy or, you know, mm. how long, you know, any number of things, right. Or how long it takes light to travel from their star to their planet or something. And then they would, they would talk about it in those sorts of units. But, uh, like yeah, so you and you could in the psychological aspects of this, of course, come up too. You could imagine even just human beings living on Earth that think other things are more important than you know solar years. Maybe you could have a culture that thinks the lunar cycle is the preeminent way of measuring time, mm-hmm. and then you know you would have you know instead of it being. 13.8 billion years old, it would be, you know, some number of lunar cycles old, you know, something like 100 billion lunar cycles old. And, and that would be completely correct. Um, there'd be nothing, nothing wrong with no, nothing better or worse than that, than thinking about it that way. So, you know, time always has to be measured relative to something else. And people can use different measuring sticks to measure their time. Right. Like, I mean, you know, the Mayans, they had a a beautiful calendar system and Mm -hmm. really understood uh, astronomy, but they had a different uh, classification of time periods. And that's right. And how they modeled it. So they still had years, though. They still had years. That's true. Um, Yeah. And they did. They were very close. I mean, they I think 360 days a year or something like that. Yeah, I know it was close. I don't I don't know the precise number, but yeah, yeah. They they uh they didn't have the whole leap year thing figured out that we had. But you know what? And uh in Europe they didn't have that until like relatively recently in in, in uh intellectual history too, you know. Yeah, well so, the Mayans um, had the concept yeah. of zero before a lot of civilizations. So mm-hmm. that's yep, very yep, important yep. very important number or non number, depending on what you think. Yeah, we didn't have that in in uh in the uh you know, European culture until they learned it from Islamic scholars in kind of the uh, scholastic era, like the 11th century, 12th century, something like that. So, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. relatively recent uh, intellectual development. Hmm. All right. So that's like, there's one other 
time question I wanted to ask you. And it was, I did an episode on time travel and are you building a time machine? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I was, uh, I was reading up um, Sir Roger Penrose Mm -hmm. and he had this concept of time in relation to particle physics, right? So he had a different idea of superposition and a kind of a different, uh, I don't know if you want to say calculation or a different thought on the whole like slit slot experiment. And he believes instead of it based on the observer that a particle actually exists in a different kind of time than we do. So the particle can actually jump backwards and like kind of see what it needs to do, whether it needs to be a wave or a particle, and then jump back in time, you know, within the milliseconds or whatever, and decide what it needs to be and then go through. All right. So (laughs) I I haven't read Penrose's views on this, but I can kind of, I can kind of figure out what he's trying to do there. Mm -hmm. So let me kind of set the table. Um, I imagine, uh, you know, I'm not going to assume all your listeners know about the intricacies of wave function collapse and the double slit experiment and whatever. So let's, let's unpack that a bit. Yeah. So in, imagine you have like, uh, a sheet, okay, and you have two slits in, in the sheet. Oh, there's a left one and a right one. And then beyond that, you have some sort of screen. And I'm going to shoot individual particles, maybe they're photons of light or something, through the, uh, through the, 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 the slits, and they're going to hit something on the other side, and I'm going to record where they hit. If you do this with a bunch of light at once, um, the light from the two slits undergoes interference with each other like when uh just like like waves in your bathtub or something the two when the two waves have their peaks at the same place they get bigger we call that constructive interference Mm. and when you have a place where there's a peak that's on top of a trough those two things cancel each other leaving no wave at all we call that destructive interference and the same thing works with light and other kinds of particles these things are waves after all so you get this interference pattern of bright, dark, bright, dark, bright, dark on your screen. And that's a, a way to prove that the things you're shooting through the apparatus are, are made of waves. So here's where it gets weird. Turns out that if I do this with one photon of light at a time, you would think that that could only go through you know, the left slit or the right slit. And therefore, there'd be nothing to interfere with. So you wouldn't get an interference pattern. Mm-hmm. The problem is you do get the interference pattern. And what that tells you is that you can't think about photons moving through the left slit or the right slit. Individual photons really go through both slits, the left and right slits. And then they interfere. And then they you know, hit whatever they're going to hit. And at some point, when we make a measurement... We only see the one one photon's trajectory or the other. We only find one reality, and the transition from going f- from a situation where the universe is in ha- all the things are true. The, they went through the left slit and the right slit, and it gets like squeezed down into one individual observed reality. We call this the collapse of the wave function, mm. and this has frustrated and confused physicists for you know more than a hundred years now. My view 
is that the wave function doesn't really collapse. You know, it's, it's, it's really just a matter of all those quantum things happen. We're part of that quantum superposition. So there are versions of us seeing, you know, the photon going through the left slit, and there are other versions of us seeing the photon going through the right slit. All of those things are equally real, and we just see a tiny fraction of this quantum multiverse. But some physicists really hate this idea. And from what you said about Penrose, it sounds like he might be one of them. Mm -hmm. And one way to try to get around this conclusion is to, uh, well, violate causality, which means going back in time and fixing things Mm -hmm. so you don't need this, uh, you know, quantum multiverse to exist. I would say that is kind of a fringe idea. Like not a lot of physicists take that stuff seriously. There's certainly no evidence for it. Mm -hmm. Um, but smart people like, you know, Sir Roger Penrose, um, you know, talk about it seriously, take it seriously. So, like, um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking, like, kind of fringe ideas and seeing if you can make them work, especially when you're talking about something as important as the foundations of quantum physics. Yeah, and also I think it's one of the, you know, which, which I've heard you talk about is kind of ruling things out is also a very important thing to do. Yeah. So if you can take these fringe ideas, float them out there, and then kind of, okay, now we can rule that out, you know, mm-hmm. and move mm-hmm. on from there. Um, but it was thinking about, uh, it, it also kind of reminded me of a panpsychism a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, so if like, because if a particle could time travel essentially or operates in a different time parameter than we do but it's making some kind of decision it would it would kind of infer some kind of consciousness you know which is yeah you know i i don't know what what penrose says about this like to me like maybe the word decision might be metaphorical though mm, like could be, yeah. you might say that you know when you put an object in a gravitational field it decides to go downward mm-hmm. but like that's not saying it's conscious so right, I, right. May, maybe maybe he doesn't mean I don't, i'm not sure i don't know what he means yeah i mean and i want to i don't want to misquote either what he said but i do yeah. think i i've have read he definitely is you know researching consciousness and i have read that he does believe it is some on on a quantum level there is something okay. to do with, with consciousness and, and the quantum level yeah, he wrote this famous book many decades ago, The Emperor's New Mind, um, where he argues that the you know emergence of human consciousness has something to do with quantum gravity. Um, I haven't thought about this in a long time. I didn't I, when I read that book most recently, and it was a long time ago. I didn't mm-hmm. find his arguments to be compelling, mm-hmm. but I, I've actually recently decided I'm going to go back and, and reinvestigate those ideas and see if they they, they, they fall different to me this time. No, maybe I, they will. Uh, let me ask you this then, because actually that that segues perfectly into something I wanted to ask you about your conversation with David Chalmers mm-hmm. about consciousness, and you were saying yeah. how you. You had a very uh, materialistic view on consciousness and that it would probably a, a physics apparatus that, you know, is what it yeah. boils down to. But when you read his book, it, it changed your mind a little bit, right? Yeah, at least provisionally. Um, I don't claim to have all the answers here, like far yeah. from it. Um, but, you know, I was, you know, spent most of my life or career or whatever, at least adult life, as, as a staunch, you know, Materialist and, and like almost every physicist I know is one of those. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, 
when I looked at the human mind, brain, or whatever, I, did, I was very confident that this was just a bunch of atoms doing complicated things, uh, processing information in a way uh, that somehow, you know, all those interactions and all that processing of information, like just some complex machine, gave rise to the first person experience that we call consciousness. I, I took that almost like as a axiom. Like I, I, I you know, never took seriously. Any alternative, and then I read uh, Chalmers' book, the the character of consciousness. And if anyone's curious about this stuff, I, I really recommend it. And um, I was completely prepared to disagree with the all everything in that book, mm-hmm. but I just couldn't find the holes in it and the arguments he lays out. Um, and and like and Chalmers is is kind of materialistic in his outlook, mm-hmm. uh, but he thinks that when when you account – if you have a purely mechanical, purely materialistic view of the emergence of consciousness, there are certain things about first-person experience you can't explain. Um, and, and not the sort of things that we can't explain yet, but you can imagine with you know better neuroscience or something we could explain. But rather, like you couldn't explain first-person experience like in principle that way. Mm-hmm. At least that's what he argues. And um, – it wouldn't surprise me if some day comes and I, na- I I come to understand why Chalmers is wrong. Okay, I I still deep down want to be or feel like I'm a materialist. Mm-hmm. I, I am in almost every way I think about the world. Um, but I don't know how to be a materialist in light of Chalmers' arguments. So I've I'm kind of in this provisional waiting to figure it out category. Um, and I don't know what all the answers are, but um, I, w- I will say I'm completely mystified about the nature of first person experience and how it could exist in our universe. Yeah, same here. I've done several shows on consciousness and uh, actually I did a one with a uh, neuroscientist and a philosopher. One that was, it was a really good conversation. But but anyway, <laughs> we got to take a quick break and we should play another track from the spectral distortions And much like the universe herself, this track is called She Holds Her Secrets Closely. (laughs) We'll be back right after this.
Welcome back to Think Theory Radio. This is Damien, and we today we are joined by the punk rock astrophysicist, Dan Hooper. Thanks, Damien. So uh, just to give a sh- uh, shout out for people who might want to hear more of that music, you can find us on like Bandcamp or Spotify, pretty much all the places you find music to stream these days. The, the band's name is The Spectral Distortions, and the album name is The First 25 Minutes. Uh, because the album's 25 minutes long because they're punk rock songs and they're short. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a tip of the hat to Steven Weinberg's famous book about the early universe called The First Three Minutes. Ah, I was wondering. I knew there was yeah. something to do with the early universe in that, but I, yeah. I wasn't sure what. And since we're talking about the band, I had another question about one of your songs, Death Ray and P.A.B. What is that about? <laughs> So PAB is a building at Fermilab where I work. Ah. We just we just picked it kind of at random because it's a sort of like, you know, building where people are, are I think it's the Proton Assembly building. And uh, like, you know, experimentalists are out there building all sorts of things. And a theoretical physicists like me don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And um, we sometimes hear people uh you know, not physicists, like, but people from the community who are, who are, you know, are suspicious of what's going on at the Fermi. Like they mm-hmm. think we're building, you know, you know, secret weapons or something. And we definitely are not. That's not what we do there. Um, and so we wrote this song kind of about some sort of conspiracy theory that we're b- d- building a death ray in the PAB building at Fermi lab, but we are not building a death ray anywhere. Not in, especially not in the proton assembly building. So you don't have Nikola Tesla's death ray blueprints. Is that what you're Not as to far say? as I'm aware. No, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe the higher ups know about that. No, right. no, I've never been told about any secret death ray plans. You're not, you're not privy to that. Uh, <laughs> I don't have that kind of security ex- clearance. Right, right. You don't know about the seventh basement. No. <laughs> that could be another another track. The seventh basement. Yeah, yeah. The Fermi Lab. We'll uh, credit you if we if we go with that. Okay, okay. <laughs> and uh, speaking of science. Yeah, I was wanted to bring you on as well to talk about because I think last time you were on, they had just launched the James Webb Space Telescope. Oh, is that right? Was I that, think we, did so. we talk about or, that? that yeah, whole... it was. I think it was they just launched it, or maybe they had. You know, it was it was around that time. It was fairly new, so there wasn't too many discoveries yet. But now it's made a ton of discoveries, right? Oh, tons, tons. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this thing is going to do its science for a long time, and it's going to be like a huge tool for astronomy, all kinds of astronomy for, you know, I don't know how many years to come. Um, so one thing that people sometimes don't understand is they, they think we build a telescope and it has like some job. It's going to like look at this thing. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. The JWC, James Webb Space Telescope, is going to like do like every kind of astronomy you might want to learn more about. It's going to have something to say about it. So people are studying planets and other solar systems. You know, JWST is a really big deal for them. Mm. People studying, uh, like, you know, the, how fast the universe is expanding over the past billions of years. JWST is going to be a big deal for that. One thing that it's been a really big deal for and has been kind of confusing to a bunch of us is some of the stuff they're seeing 
about like the first stars and first galaxies mm-hmm. in our universe. So we're talking about like, you know, hundreds of millions of years after the Big Bang. So, you know, not not like not what I would call the early universe, but like pretty early. A young, you know, young universe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the uh, the adolescence right. of our universe, <laughs> if you will. Um, you know, these are they're they're in junior high, you know, that right. sort of thing. Right. Um, but uh, we're seeing more kind of big, bright galaxies earlier on in history, cosmic history, than we maybe expected. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like these are early measurements. It, it might be that it was as we measure things better, like a more you know expected picture comes together. But right now, I would say we're seeing more of these objects at earlier times than we expected or can really readily explain. So that's all really exciting. We're trying to figure it all out. Um, one thing I'm really excited about is the role that the Webb Telescope can play in uh, kind of shoring up something we call the distance ladder. So hmm. to measure distances, we we can't just like, you know, put a ruler out there in space, right? Like we don't have, you know, we can't do that. a space ruler. We don't have a space ruler, not a very long one anyway. So like we can like measure the distance to the moon or something by like bouncing lasers off it. Mm -hmm. And we can measure the distance to like, I don't know, nearby stars using like geometry, using a method we call parallax. And then we can, you know, measure distances to groups of stars by looking at the populations of the stars and their colors and things. And, okay, we can do a, get a little farther out that way. And we use these variable star, stars called Cepheids, which allow us to measure distances to even greater distances. And then the greater, greatest distances still, we use these things called uh, type 1A supernovae. It's a mm-hmm. particular kind of explosion of a star. And um, – the weird thing is when we do all this, we find that we measure the current rate that the universe is expanding to be, you know, a little bit higher than when we measure that same quantity with a bunch of other methods. And that's pretty confusing. Like we, we these these methods should all give the same number, but like the uh, distance ladder measurements say it's like 74 kilometers per second for every megaparsec separating two things. Just as a number, 74. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other methods give like 67 or 68. And we're confused about this. Webb is going to help us sort that out um, as a telescope. Okay. Now, what is there any other discovery that it's made that you just are flabbergasted by or anything? Well, those I mean, I'm are sure like, there's tons, but... Yeah, I mean, so I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. It's not okay. something they've done. You know, like they haven't hit that home run yet, at least that I know of. But um, like they're going to tell us so much about the uh, the details of planets beyond our own solar system. Like when when I like started studying physics. Like we all assumed there were planets in other solar systems, but we didn't really know. We mm. didn't have any way of detecting them or anything. But like in the modern era, we have like thousands and thousands and thousands of, of known exoplanets or ex- extrasolar planets. Um, but I, I'll tell you what I'm excited about there is finding whether there's a bunch of them that could support life and even better yet, like signatures of that life. So one thing we can hope to do, for example, is try to measure 
the kind of atoms and molecules that these planets have in their atmosphere mm-hmm. and see, like, are there any biosignatures here? Like, uh, you know, if, if life had never existed on Earth, there would be essentially no oxygen in our atmosphere. So all that oxygen comes from life. So are we going to find planets that have a bunch of oxygen or mm-hmm. maybe find a bunch of planets and find that none of them do? Either one would be pretty interesting. Um, and, and there are a bunch of other kind of biosignatures that we can look for. And Webb is going to be one of the big players in doing that sort of work. Yeah, I was even reading an article uh, about that, but also about this, you know, bringing it back to extraterrestrials, <laughs> mm. but using the similar kind of application, but to figure out if there is, a, you know, a techni- technologically advanced civilization on yeah. some of these exoplanets based on what you're talking about, looking for different atoms and, and different ways that are, you know, that technology would affect the atmosphere and, and things of that nature. Essentially looking for alien pollution. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, hopefully they're not like us, so maybe, maybe we won't find them because they're not as bad as we are. Well, if they're like us for any length of time, they won't be around very long. You know? Yeah, um, I know that's the... If, if we want to have a long future, we need to, uh, you know, start being a little more responsible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... A, that's I'll have you back on. We can talk about that. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> uh, but you know what the James Webb Space Telescope also brought me to uh, another topic that I wanted to to bring up with you is kind of science sensationalism, okay? Yeah. And I feel like there's so many click it's so weird to me that like science has kind of i guess like everything else in our culture and our society has entered this phase of where you know it's all clickbait right so yeah. i see so many you know i think because my my algorithms are all now set to all kind of you know weird stuff but it'll you know it's it's always something like you know james webb space telescope shatters science you know <laughs> like you know yeah any is- anything any article that starts with a headline like that I mean, you should you should go into it assuming that it's just nonsense, right? Because it almost always is. Yeah, because I mean, there's been t- like it proves Albert Einstein wrong. You know, <laughs> hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I guess I wanted to ask you, like, your like either your opinion or how do you yeah. combat this kind of science sensationalism? So I, I, for one, think science is exciting enough mm-hmm. without um, going down that road of, of making it sensationalist. Um, I, I call this science populism when I'm talking about it mm-hmm. because I, I think it has all of the same features as, you know, uh, the kind of political populism that we see. It's like it's it's telling people what stuff they want to hear and not caring what the facts are, mm. um, you know, and, and, and running with that anyway, and, and like getting people riled up about things and telling them not to trust the experts and that they're all lying to you. Um, I did a, a podcast episode of Why This Universe earlier this year that was specifically on the challenges posed by s- populist science. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a very dangerous thing. Um, I don't want the scientific community to lose their trustworthiness to the public by having these people go out there and, and kind of just spew nonsense. Um, you know, if you don't have to even be lying to be complicit in this, like let's say there's some study, just one paper out there and it 
claims some sensational thing. You know, Einstein's wrong. Dark matter doesn't exist. Um, and, it, you know, dark energy doesn't exist. And it's all something else, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like there are papers, you know, that real scientists write that say stuff like that. A good journalist won't just like report that. Mm-hmm. What they'll do is they will go and talk to a bunch of different scientists, find out what the strengths and weaknesses of those arguments are, and then write some well-balanced thing that describes the state of our current knowledge. Um, like if, if I am doing sports reporting and, uh, you know, every, you know, 19 out of 20 people think, you know, the Bears are going to win on Sunday. I know the season's over, but, you know, whatever. So in my analogy, it's still going on. And um, and somebody in, – in, but the 20th person you talk to says, oh, they're not playing on Sunday. Um, they have a bye week. And like, well, don't report, you know, guy claims mm-hmm. – guy says that there's a bye week next week. Like, you know, find out if he's right. Yeah. Or, or like could be right or is worth taking seriously. Don't just like report the the contrarian. Um, and, and, and a lot of this clickwake stuff that is so easy to mass produce um, is that sort of like reporting the contrarian. And it's not helpful. It's just, it, you know, nobody learns anything from that. It just confuses the public. It erodes um, people's confidence in science. And I think people should knock it off. Yeah, and it's amazing to me how quickly it gets picked up by somewhat reputable uh, outlets as well. I, Sometimes, uh, you yeah, know, I've yeah. seen things. I'm like, really, you guys are you know posting this? I, it, it's interesting because I did hear the the episode that you're talking about, and I listened to it right after, or you know, very soon after I had read the article that you were talking about on the episode. No, yeah. And when I was reading that article, I, I instantly thought like, I wonder what Dan thinks about this. And then I, <laughs> that I well, heard, now you know. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't really want to give that article credence, so I'm not going to mention it, but. I think that's we, wise, yeah. Yeah, we don't really have that much time anyway, because we have to play another track from the spectral distortions before we get Everyone out Everyone should here. come out to the Burlington on yes. February 3rd. We've got a great lineup. Um, tell me you heard this on, heard about it on WCPT, and I'll be happy to buy you a beer or a different drink of your choice. Yes. I mean, you can't go wrong with getting a beer bought from you, bought for you by a astrophysicist, cosmologist. Come on. Come on, people. It's, it's on a- your bucket list. You know it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan, for coming on. And I promise My pleasure. It, it will be less than a year next time you're on. And All right. everybody, check out the Spectral Distortions, February 3rd, Burlington Bar. And this track is Conspiracy Theory, perfect for Think Theory Radio.
see your face! 